Um, good evening. Thank you very much for coming. It feels great to be back in surroundings that are both familiar, very familiar, but also unfamiliar. So um, thank you for having me this evening. I'm afraid we have a technical problem, which is an old-fashioned one, which is my voice. <laughs> it's going, so um, um, bear with me. I hope that we will make it through. Um, so uh, let me begin with this, with this document. I'll give you a chance to have a look at it. So this was flyered in Mosul by the so-called Islamic State around a year ago. So what we're looking at is a piece of quite um, mundane administration, which actually provides us with significant insight into contemporary jihadism, which I'll come back to. But this gives me the opportunity to introduce the first overarching point uh, that I'd like to make this evening, and which I hope you'll bear in mind as we progress, which is administration, territorialization, governance. As you may know, ISIS is taking control um, of territory the size of the UK, and it's estimated to command as many as 50,000 fighters in Syria and Iraq. Incidentally, there are nearly 50,000 pro-Islamic State um, accounts on Twitter, which have an average of 1,000 followers each. Now, let's look at something else. Here are some reactions to the Islamic State and its declaration of the caliphate. <clears throat> to radical um, Palestinian cleric uh, Abu Qatada, well known in the UK as he used to live here until Theresa May deported him, um, back to Jordan a couple of years ago, ISIS were dogs of the hellfire. The leaders of Jaysh al-Mujahideen, a Salafist jihadist group based in Iraq, very extreme actually itself, dubbed them ignorant lying murderers. And as you may know, the head of Al-Qaeda publicly dissociated his organization, the pioneer of global jihad, from ISIS and its seditious actions. So here we have another theme that I'd like you to keep in mind as we move forward. Rivalry, division, fragmentation. So what I'm going to do now is um, focus on the rise of ISIS and look at the main changing dynamics of global jihadism or radical Islamism at this point in time. And the first one to note is localization. So it seems to me that Al-Qaeda emerged partly due to the globalization of a local conflict in Afghanistan, the jihad there in the 1980s. But conversely, ISIS, it seems to me, rose to prominence in Iraq and Syria through the localization of Al-Qaeda's global struggle. In the 1980s, Abdullah Azam interpreted the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan from a radical Islamic perspective. Shunning the nationalist narrative of resistance, he advocated fighting for the sake of Islam. And he um, depicted the duty of jihad as akin to one of the five pillars of the faith. <clears throat> In Peshawar, uh, Osama bin Laden helped to fund and organize the guys who responded to Azam's call. And bin Laden later established a training camp for them in Afghanistan at Jaji. In the emerging normative arena of international Islamism, Osama bin Laden found a political audience and the beginnings of a political platform. And the fighters whose training he supported formed the nucleus of a kind of army, a force dedicated to fighting causes newly defined as Islamic. So bin Laden went on to forge a worldwide jihadist movement that in order to justify attacks against the US and its allies, viewed local conditions through a global prism. 
He was deeply preoccupied with global politics, decrying Washington's failure to sign the Kyoto Protocol, blaming the UN for the global suffering of Muslims, and framing Al-Qaeda's war as a global battle of Muslims against global crusaders. So achieving Al-Qaeda's goals ultimately depended upon the mobilization of a form of globalized identity. And perhaps on the face of it, ISIS appears to be the natural outgrowth of this project. But it is actually far more particularized. Its antecedent groups were born amid the violent contestation for power in post-invasion Iraq, which becomes important for three reasons. Due to the exigencies of that conflict, these groups placed a heavy emphasis on the anti-Shia component of jihadist ideology. Fighting as they were a Shia-dominated government backed by the US and its allies, and living with this notion that power, as Valinasa put it, that power had been snatched from the Sunni and handed to the Shia. And also, um, both participation in the Iraqi insurgency and a sort of tactical alliance with former Ba'athist officials drove ISIS to approach jihad as a state-building enterprise. While bin Laden and his um, band of itinerant global jihadists understood the ideal order of the caliphate in a way that was almost metaphysical, Baghdadi and his followers lived through a bitter local struggle in which survival and victory were geared towards capturing territory. And accordingly, local identity politics have been pivotal to the achievement of ISIS's aims. So they have a, a different relationship to the global. ISIS and its antecedents imported the symbols of global jihad into the Iraqi and Syrian context and have sought global reach to consolidate local gains. Bin Laden had taken great pains to deterritorialize jihad as an important part of Al-Qaeda's bid for universality. By contrast, ISIS has aggressively linked jihad to the acquisition and administration of territory. Critically, this territorial project ties the, groups, um, the group to a vision of society that makes dealing with bad Muslims more fundamental than attacking the West, if not more urgent. Hence, a police car in Raqqa. So that's the first dynamic. Um, the second changing dynamic is our targets. Al-Qaeda had waged war on the far enemy as a means of weakening the near enemy. But in, in the years after 9-11, Al-Qaeda offshoots focused on what I call the nearer enemy, impure society, Shia, Christians, Yazidis, and other Sunnis deemed insufficiently pure. Some affiliated groups, IQAP in Yemen, for example, maintained their focus on the US and its allies. But other outfits in Iraq or Pakistan and elsewhere anathematized their neighbors within their own communities that were loyal to other religion and Islamic sects, employing brutal tactics for largely local ends and often killing for killing's sake. And although bin Laden had described his foundational mission uh, as a defensive jihad to protect our land and people, since 9-11, or after 9-11, the victims of groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda were most often Muslim civilians. And intercepted communications reveal 
that the group's central leadership was unable to halt this misdirected violence, which ultimately had a strategic impact, which even bin Laden recognized. And I've put a quote from one of his letters up there. This has led to the alienation of most of the Islamic nation from the Mujahideen. That was his realization shortly before he died. Now, let me briefly rewind back in time. It's Cairo in November 1994. The Egyptian prime minister's armored convoy is weaving through the city. And as it passes by a girls' school, a car bomb explodes. A door is blown loose in the blast, which crushes to death a young schoolgirl, Shema Abu Halim. 21 others are injured, but the prime minister himself is unhurt. The perpetrator of that attack was the Egyptian al-Jihad group, led by Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now here's what he had to say about that incident more than 10 years ago. Let me discuss the death of the innocent child Shema. I deeply regret her death and am willing to play blood money. This girl was as old as my own daughter. 20 years on, Zawahiri's attitude remains fundamentally unchanged. Zawahiri is responsible for a great deal of the jihadist literature written in the 1990s, which tries to Islamically justify suicide bombings. But he nowadays laments that the expansion of those suicide attacks has led to great moral transgression. And he's also insisted that focus should be maintained on bleeding the US to death financially and militarily. And look at some of the recommendations he makes in general guidelines for jihad. This is a document which appeared in 2013. So the basic idea is that it's not okay to wage total war against nearer enemies. That's not what we're about. Focus on hitting Western targets. But ISIS, on the other hand, has fully embraced the jihad's <coughs> inward turn. To begin with, its ideological basis is unabashedly anti-Shia. Its literature dehumanizes the Shia as filthy mushrikeen and regularly derides them as rafida, rejectors of the truth, Sabians, Magians, Safavids, Nusairiya for the Alawi. And in his November 2014 audio address, about a year ago, Baghdadi identified the Shia as the primary enemy. ISIS also has a very aggressive posture towards religious minorities, which is well known, and their cultural heritage. Um, their horrific campaign against the Yazidis and, and Christians of Iraq and Syria is well known, and even involves the revival of slavery. So, it's all very grisly and heartbreaking. But ISIS doesn't, also doesn't try to conceal its harsh treatment of Sunnis as part of its commitment to a brutal puritanical application of Sharia law within the territory it ministers and in service of, of its bid for expansion outside it. So ISIS has waged war on other hardline Sunni groups within the Syrian and Iraqi opposition, including Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate, it's even established an Islamic military police unit in Raqqa to deal with dissenting fighters and deserters within its own ranks. It's executed hundreds of its own, including senior leaders, its spiritual leader in Deir Zur, its chief of security in Aleppo, uh, allegedly because he disagreed vehemently with the burning of, of uh, the Jordanian pilot, and also dozens of mostly Turkish fighters uh, a few months ago who allegedly plotted a coup. They were executed. The group has also conducted a campaign of execution against Sunni tribes of the Ambar province, particularly the Albunimr. 
Now, ISIS's spokesman has stated that any Muslim, any Muslim worldwide who does not bow to Baghdadi's authority is living in sin. And there was actually a quote that was attributed to Baghdadi by um, Ashraq al-Awsat. Uh, and the journalist there had interviewed a number of men that had been in prison with Baghdadi when he was in Camp Bukha. And he allegedly stated in 2007 that fighting rival Sunni militias in Iraq was more worthy than fighting the United States. So internal enemies have always been a major preoccupation for ISIS. And hence, ISIS has probably killed more Sunni than Shia. However, of course, the thrust of ISIS is not exclusively inwards. Um, in important ways, it brings together different jihadi preoccupations under one umbrella, thus posing a combined threat to society, the state, and the West. Having honed its fighting skills against the near enemy in Baghdad and Damascus, and having earned an unrivaled reputation for brutality against what I call the nearer enemy, ISIS will almost certainly attempt to attack uh, the far enemy. As well as executing Western hostages, it's increasingly called for violence against the West. It's been uh, um, repeatedly publicized, particularly since about a year ago when the airstrikes began, and also now with the Russian airstrikes. Uh, <coughs> Um, its interests are very much um, more the target. And the foreign fighter contingent within ISIS is, is almost key. It's important. It's not, it's not um, essential, but it's important to achieving that end. But I think that the significance of foreign fighters goes beyond, far beyond their impact on the battlefield and the prospect that individual fighters and small cells will return back to the West to stage attacks. The presence of foreign fighters within its ranks serves to extend the imagined boundaries of the caliphate, potentially inspiring a sense of ownership, belonging, and obligation in individual Muslims worldwide. That's the idea. Of course, for more than six years, Al-Qaeda has sought aggressively to incite terrorism among individual Muslims already living in the West. But what's crucial is this. ISIS offers the opportunity for any such sympathizers to conceive of themselves as soldiers waging war on behalf of a state, a tangible community, rather than as lone wolves perpetrating terrorism to a more ill-defined end. But of course, this reality makes them more vulnerable and less agile, and that's the point that I'll return to. But here we are um, at the third changing dynamic, which is about projecting strength. Whereas um, Osama bin Laden's construction of the Al-Qaeda narrative was based very much on victimhood and dispossession, he carefully depicted Al-Qaeda's fighters as downtrodden but defiant moral agents. Using improvised weapons of the weak, the lions of Islam relied on their cunning and the weaponization of everyday objects to attest to the justice of their cause. The arrogation of righteousness was based on the self-image of Al-Qaeda's fighters as the oppressed. In contrast, ISIS makes an effort to emphasize its relative strength. And here's a quote on the founding of the caliphate. It's, it's a long quote, but you sort of get the point um, that there's a change in tone and this is reinforced by the fact that ISIS controls oil fields. It issues its own passports and currency. It counts among its vast arsenal M1A1 tanks, up-armored Humvees, and at least three MiG-21 and MiG-23 aircraft. 
Some may have been shot down by the Assad uh, regime. Hence, the jihadist groups that have pledged allegiance to ISIS have done so in a congratulatory manner, lauding it for its prowess. And I think the importance of this model, this, this um, tone of success, actually implies on the individual level, it, imp it applies, forgive me, on the individual level, in terms of the potential allure for um, thousands of foreign fighters, and perhaps the particular appeal for people of a psychopathic bent. Because the ISIS jihad centers on the wielding of power rather than the search for deliverance. As such, the tone of global jihad has now shifted from one of desperation to one of celebration. And this is a, a huge change in my view. That's how it is for now anyway. Um, sorry, that was related to what I was just saying. So yeah, essentially wielding power rather than searching for deliverance. Um, and the final dynamic is about um, millenarism. So, so there's this very striking eschatological component to ISIS ideology. Although a bunch of other radical Islamist belief systems have included a millenarian component, ISIS pushes to the fore the view of violence as hastening a new millennium. It's almost a hallmark. And I'm sure some of you will know that Al-Qaeda popularized a disputed hadith which referred to Khurasan, the Sasanian name given to a region uh, encompassing parts of um, present-day Iran, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and crucially, Afghanistan. So this hadith was the inspiration for al-Qaeda's black flag and provided a rationale for its base in Afghanistan. These words appeared in al-Qaeda's propaganda, you may have seen them, and on sympathetic web forums. And when asked by his FBI interrogator why he thought al-Qaeda would be victorious, a senior aide and bodyguard to Osama bin Laden recited them in response. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so th this is an important hadith for Al-Qaeda's narrative, and it also recalls one messianic trend, which expects the Mahdi to return, uh, sometimes with Jesus, in Khurasan before the end of time to fill the world with light. So in order to bolster his moral authority to declare jihad, Osama bin Laden sought to exploit the fact that Khurasan has powerful resonance with many Muslims because of the messianic expectations focused on that area. However, bin Laden rarely made direct reference to the end times, the Mahdi, or the apocalypse. By contrast, a hallmark of ISIS ideology is an explicit preoccupation with these messianic expectations, but with a geographical focus on its heartlands in Syria and Iraq. One lengthy hadith attributed to the Prophet references Dabiq, a town in northern Syria, where an apocalyptic battle will occur allegedly, between the armies of Rome and Islam. The struggle ends with the arrival of the Redeemer, and according to the Hadith, when the enemy of Allah sees him, he will melt, as salt melts in water. Now, ISIS propagandists name their recruitment magazine after the town. They regularly employ a 2004 quotation from Abu Musa al-Zarqawi about finally burning the Crusader armies in Dabiq. And in 2014, ISIS's fighters, these, these men among them, 
battled ferociously with other Syrian rebels to capture the town, which was strategically insignificant. And then they took to beheading the, the, their Western hostages there. Here we are burning the first American crusader in Dabiq, eagerly waiting for the remainder of your armies to arrive, one British executioner said to the camera. And there's an article in, the, in Dabiq magazine which explores a series of quotations from the founders of, the Islam, of ISIS and its predecessor groups on the signs of the hour. Crucially, it was under the leadership of Zarqawi and men like Abu Ayyub al-Masri that this millenarianism became a defining characteristic of the predecessor groups to ISIS. Towards the end of the US occupation of Iraq, they saw signs of the end times everywhere, according to interviews, and were anticipating, within a year, the arrival of the Mahdi, the Redeemer. So when ISIS was founded, these messianic expectations, this anticipation carried over. And the official ISIS spokesman promised that the Crusader armies will be, will be defeated in Dabiq, and ISIS will then have a meeting in Jerusalem and an appointment in Rome. Here, he may well have been referring to the belief common in ISIS circles that after the decisive battle in Dabiq, ISIS fighters will capture Jerusalem. The Antichrist will then appear and slaughter all but 5,000 of ISIS's men, who will ultimately be rescued by Jesus before conquering the world. That's one version. <laughs> Indeed, the seventh edition of Dabiq notes that the sword will continue to be drawn, raised, and swung until Jesus kills the Antichrist. Thereafter, Islam and justice will prevail over the entire earth. And sadly, even the horrific, horrific practice of enslaving Yazidi women and children is directly justified with reference to the coming apocalypse. Another very marginal hadith is invoked, which counts as one of the signs of the hour, a situation where a slave girl gives birth to her master. So for some elements of ISIS, this is the reasoning. Now, I don't mean to over-dramatize the cultish component of ISIS, or to downplay the reality that its leadership is comprised of a bunch of disaffected but highly capable former Baathists who want to grab and hold on to power. But I do think this pronounced apocalyptic element is firstly new, and secondly, a very important enabler for ISIS's vision and its destruction. By virtue of the belief even if it's only chaired by a small wing of ISIS, that the most profound devastation creates new hope by hastening messianic intervention. So, um, for some implications. What we've discussed yields two seemingly contradictory effects. And the first is the tendency towards unity created primarily by imitation. It's likely that other jihadist groups will apply the ISIS paradigm of jihad, particularly in seizing and holding local territory and in brutally imposing this vision for society. And one example comes in the form of Boko Haram, who, uh, which made headway on, on, on both fronts in 2014, killing more than 10,000 Nigerians in the process. The group's capture of large towns and cities in Borno State laid the groundwork for a push to Maiduguri, the state capital, and home to more than a million people. And its brutal activities were largely aimed at society, the nearer enemy. Suicide bombings, executing people for smoking, 
abducting women and children and threatening to sell them as slaves and indeed enslaved men. Boko Haram has also stepped up its attacks in neighboring Cameroon, replicating the cross-border manifestation of ISIS, and it conducted its own Breaking the Walls campaign. Now, the original Breaking the Walls campaign was conducted by Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and it was a year-long series of prison breaks that began in the summer of 2012. And this culminated with the escape of 500 suspected militants from Abu Ghraib prison after members of the group fought their way into the compound using suicide bombs, mortars, and RPGs. Boko Haram has likewise uh, freed hundreds and hundreds of prisoners over the last two years. And this all culminated uh, in March with a formal pledge of allegiance to ISIS. In North Africa, ISIS has received pledges of allegiance from a number of established groups, established and emerging groups. Uh, the Uqba bin Naifi is questionable, and some others have retracted. It's a constantly moving scene. Um, but consequently, last year, ISIS established provinces in eastern Libya and uh, in the Sinai and Gaza border region. And there have been dramatic rises in beheadings of spies, non-Muslims, and civil activists in these areas, reflecting the entrenchment of ISIS's vision for society. Of course, before the emergence of ISIS, jihadist groups had held and administered territory before. For periods of time in Yemen, Iraq, Somalia, Mali, and Pakistan, albeit on a smaller scale. But while these efforts were largely improvised and inherently fragile, the trend towards creating ISIS provinces offers systematization, common purpose, and therefore the potential for increased resilience. And the power vacuums that have emerged in countries affected by the Arab Spring obviously create ideal conditions for the establishment of such provinces. So the um, political opportunity is there. So that's the first effect. But the second effect, of course, is fragmentation. A tendency, at least, towards it, which is caused primarily by competition. While the announcement of a caliphate by an al-Qaeda offshoot in 2014 would in itself imply a strong element of political religious unity, in reality, the story is one of competition and deep division at the heart of radical Islam. And due to its um, rapacity, its audacity, and its affront to al-Qaeda's authority, the purportedly universal caliphate has had a deeply polarizing effect. In the first place, it subverted in, uh, entirely the established patterns of authority, which involved the leaders of jihadist group pledging bayat to Zawahiri, who had in turn pledged bayat to Mullah Omar in, uh, of the Taliban in Afghanistan, who was widely regarded as the rightful caliph. And after his death, um, apparently concealed for two years, uh, he's been replaced by Mullah Akhtar Mansur. Baghdadi, for his part, claims to be a descendant of the prophet, and so a member of the tribe of Quraysh entitled to hold the position of caliph. As a result, the global jihad has been split at the highest level, with jihadist groups forced to come down on one side of the other, and further down the chain of command as well, as dissenting factions emerge in major regional branches, such as AQIIM, the North Africa affiliate, and AQAP. And I've put up a quote from one AQAP official to split the ranks of the Mujahideen and scatter them. So Baghdadi's bid to consolidate Islamic authority has actually further dispersed it. <coughs> In North Africa alone, 
The unilateral announcement of the caliphate has prompted the formation of new anti-ISIS groups, such as the Sinai-based jihadist uh, garrison battalion. They rejected Baghdadi's authority and warned other Sinai groups against following this path. And while Tunisia's Ansar al-Sharia opted to voice support for ISIS rather than pledge allegiance to the group, its spokesmen and other members appeared to break ranks and swear fealty to Baghdadi. A chief judge of AQIM, one of Al-Qaeda Central's major allies, issued a statement of support for Baghdadi, and dozens of fighters from the group reportedly defected to ISIS, crossing the border from Algeria into Libya. Al-Murabatun, uh, issued a statement announcing its allegiance to ISIS, but its co-leader, Mukhtar Bel-Mukhtar, later retracted that statement, saying that it hadn't been approved by the Shura Council. And of course, you have ISIS fighters making significant gains in radical strongholds in eastern Libya, particularly Derna. But then they're pushed out by some other very radical guys for killing, actually, a senior member of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. And I also believe that the dispute over the caliphate provides a convenient point of contestation for many other pre-existing rivalries. If we go back to North Africa, uh, AQIM has for years struggled with internal disorder. In 2012, an intercepted letter attributed to, to Drukdal, the group's emir, depicted an ill organization. You can see some of his complaints there, just some. Um, now, Drukdal was avowedly uh, against using takfir. ISIS, on the other hand, is, you know, completely for it. So earlier in the year, when some analysts came out saying, look, Boko Haram has decided to pledge allegiance to ISIS. AQIM has been trying this for years, and it didn't happen, so now they've clearly been sidelined. I was a bit skeptical. AQIM wants very little, I think, to do with groups like Boko Haram and ISIS, for whom takfir is the lifeblood. I think AQIM very much the children of bin Laden. They feel it's a strategic non-starter to start creating divisions within the Ummah. Anyway, this discipline problem was personified by Belmukhtar, a veteran jihadist and smuggler from Algeria who'd been castigated for backbiting and his unwillingness to follow orders or submit expense reports. <laughs> I've put some quotes up from the letter so you can see the kind of beef they had with him. You in particular, every time. <laughs> so Belmukhtar finally broke with AQIM in late 2012, and he announced the arrival of his new group with the Ain Aminis attacks a few weeks later. He's currently based in Libya and operating in alliance with Mujao, the Malian group, under the banner of Al-Murabatun. That's at least what we, what we, what we know, uh, from what little we know. And if Al-Murabatun do jump on the ISIS bandwagon, and I previously discussed the conflicting statements. This will serve, of course, to further needle the beleaguered Drukdal, who's allegedly vowed to liquidate ISIS. Incidentally, this looks increasingly unlikely as one ISIS leader in Libya, Abu Ina al-Zuwari, uh, a few days ago, declared that Belmukhtar was an apostate who must be killed for having led the exodus of jihadi fighters from Mali when Operation Serval began. And of course, Drukdal uh, must also contend with the return to North Africa of thousands of foreign fighters from Syria. <clears throat> These figures are estimates, of course. 
In Syria and Iraq, they will have become familiar with extreme tactics, ISIS networks, and new ideas about jihadist legitimacy, or even about what it is to be a jihadi. And finally, of course, you'll have a push and pull within the movement itself, between leaders and fighters more interested in amassing power and property, and a more cultish wing more interested in hastening the arrival of the Redeemer. So there's this centrifugal trend. So to conclude, um, I would say that these competing tendencies of unity and fragmentation create a sort of dialectical tension that will drive the evolution of global jihadism in the years to come. And I think that the localization that we've discussed is very powerful. The more superficial unity that we have with ISIS provinces being declared and territory staked out and administration set up, the more access to local resources, this provides increasing access to independent sources of income based on local taxation, extraction, and extortion, which only accelerates fragmentation. And there's another force for, for fragmentation, of course, too, which is when you create a territorially-based sort of mini-evil empire, you're going to eventually invite your enemies to bomb you, as we're seeing with Russia, ostensibly at least. I don't know what's happening around Dara, but, um, you know, so we all too easily write off Al-Qaeda, but bear in mind that the state model contains major sources of vulnerability. You have to be very brutal to maintain that level of control over people. And it's also expensive to defend in terms of blood and treasure. In any case, my conclusion is that counterintuitive as it may sound, the global jihad may, do, may be drawn apart by the spread of the ISIS model and the growing similarity of its various components. Thank you.